we will be taking a text called the Advaita Makaranda by Lakshmi Dhara Kavi. As the Swami said, it's a very little-known text. There are not many Vedantins that know of this particular text. But when I read it uh, two, three years ago, I was very much, or at least three years ago, I was very much impressed with uh, the concise uh, but profound uh, expression of the Vedantic truth. And uh, as I began to read it, uh, I began to uh, think of the layers of meaning contained in the verses. And so first began, just for my own uh, enjoyment, began... Uh, commenting on it as I tried to understand it, uh, and then decided to publish the translation and commentary. And so this is the result of that. So the title means Advaita Makaranda. Makaranda means the nectar uh, produced by bees, makaras. Bees collect nectar from flowers, and out out of that they make honey. And so this is the nectar of Advaita, of non-duality. So I hope all of you who have come ready for a strong dose of Advaita. Uh, if you haven't, there's still time to leave and I won't be offended. <laughs> when I was in training center, one of, the, one of my fellow brahmacharins, this was back in 1975, my first year of TC, uh, the Acharya teacher was uh, teaching us about the Mahavakyas, the great statements of the Upanishads, in particular, Aham Brahmasmi, I am Brahman, I am the reality itself. And uh, so he turned to one of the brahmacharins, whose name was Bhakta, meaning devotee. And he was a hundred percent Bhakta, devotee. He's now passed away. He became a Swami, but he passed away early. Um, And so he said, Bhakta, uh, say Aham Brahmasmi. No, Bhakta, say, say, Aham Brahmasmi, Aham Brahmasmi. It won't hurt. It won't hurt. But just, just say it. Just, just, just say Aham Brahmasmi. I said in Bengali, only crazy people say Aham Brahmasmi. Only crazy people say that. He wouldn't even say say Aham Brahmasmi. But only crazy people say that. So um, there are people who, because of temperament and uh, good temperament, they have an allergy to non-dualism. So, again, if you have an allergic reaction, then please feel free to uh, excuse yourself. Uh, but uh, for those who remain, we will uh, speak about the uh, teachings in this text, which is a very profound and unique text. So let me say a word about the author and then a word about the text itself, and then we'll begin with verses. Uh, the author, Lakshmi Dhara Kavi. Lakshmi Dhara means literally he who holds Lakshmi. So it means Vishnu. So he's named after Vishnu as the one who holds Lakshmi, the divine mother, Lakshmi. And Kavi means poet. And it also means sage. Because the Kavis of the Vedas were sages, not just people who spun out uh, verse to spin out verse, but they were considered sages who, uh, because of their vision of the truth, their ecstatic vision of the truth, uh, they expressed, they could express it in nothing but uh, kavya, in uh, poetry. And so the kavi is krantadarshi, uh, the uh, seer of the uh, higher truth. So Lakshmi Dara kavi, not much is known for sure about him. In fact, there are several versions of his life. Uh, and there were two, at least two or three different Lakshmi Dhara Kavis, um, uh, and so that confuses uh, his identity also. Uh, but it seems uh, 
that he was a uh, court uh, pundit and kavi uh, in South India, and uh, he uh, lived in the was it 14th century, I believe it was. Uh, though another text translated by the same text translated by Swami Tejo Mayanandiji of the Chinmoy Mission uh, says that he lived in the 17th century in Orissa. But uh, most uh, the all the traditions I've read say that he lived in South India in uh, the, I believe it was the 14th century. When did Vidyaranya live? Was it 14th or 15th? Uh, anyway, whenever Vidyaranya lived, the great uh, Vedanta philosopher, but I believe it was the 14th century. Though he was a court pundit, he wrote three texts. This, he also wrote uh, the uh, Bhagavan Nama Komudi, uh, text on the uh, name of, names of God, the repetition of the names of God, a, a text on Japa. And he also wrote a uh, Bhagavat Tarangini, uh, that is a, a commentary on the Srimad Bhagavatam. Uh, so he wrote a uh, commentary on the Srimad Bhagavatam, which is a beautiful harmonization of knowledge and devotion. He wrote a text on uh, the repetition of God's names, and he wrote a text on uncompromising non-dualism. Uh, and so he was an example of the best in the Indian tradition of multifaceted genius, someone who could see truth from different sides. Uh, he could uh, expound the truth from the full Advaitic perspective, and he also could speak uh, with authority of uh, devotion. And it's said that he uh, uh, later took sannyasa and took the name Krishnendra uh, as a sannyasi. So we don't know when he wrote this, whether it was as a sannyasi or before he became a sannyasi. It's also said that during his married life, his wife was the sister of Vidyaranya, the great author of the Panchadashi. Um, and so that's why I was uh, wondering when Vidyaranya lived, but it was either the 14th or 15th century, and so he was contemporaneous. So a great, a great man, a great poet, and as you'll see, the text is a wonderful statement of Advaita. So a word about the text itself. There are many different types of texts on Advaita Vedanta. There are, of course, the source texts, the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita, uh, which are the source of the Advaita uh, knowledge. And then there are texts like the Brahma Sutra, which took the teachings of the Upanishads and put them in philosophical form and also argued against other schools of philosophy, even in the Brahma Sutra itself. There are arguments against other schools of philosophy. And then Shankaracharya's famous commentary on the Brahma Sutra uh, was uh, devoted to defeating other schools of philosophy and promoting the school of Advaita. So such texts are partly at least polemical. That is, they're meant for establishing a philosophy and arguing against uh, contradicting philosophies. This is not that type of text. Then there are texts like the Panchadashi, which I re referred to, the, written by Vidyaranyamuni, uh, the uh, Viveka Chudamani by Shankaracharya and many other texts like that uh, which present the Advaitic truth for the sake of sadhakas, for the sake of spiritual practice. They present the truth in a form that's to be taken up and meditated on by spiritual aspirants and all aspects of the truth so that it convinces the mind, so that the uh, aspirant can move forward with full faith. That yes, I've understood this truth <clears throat> of non-dualism and uh, I will uh, pursue it. 
Uh, and then there are what are called prakarana grantas or subsidiary texts, which are usually small texts which take up a particular aspect of Vedanta and present that. <clears throat> but this Advaita Makaranda doesn't fit into any of those categories. Uh, this, the unique thing about this text is that it talks about the presence, the undeniable, visible presence of the Advaitic knowledge in the midst of our present consciousness. Now, one of the things about Advaita which is difficult for many people is it's so contrary to our normal experience. It says that I am the reality itself. There is no objective world. The world is imagined within me. I am the reality itself. That doesn't seem to mesh with our normal experience at all. It says that this world is unreal. You know, the famous Dr. Johnson, which I don't know if any of you know of Dr. Johnson, but it's, uh, he's known more in India than he is in modern America. Uh, he was an Englishman who was the, uh, 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 he, uh, who was the first English lexicographer, uh, a dictionary uh, of the English language. And he had a uh, friend and follower named Boswell, who was the ideal biographer, who wrote the biography of uh, Dr. Johnson. And uh, so one day Dr. Johnson was, uh, there are a couple of versions of this story, so I'll tell one of the versions. Uh, he was walking down the path with Boswell, and he kicked a stone with his foot. And he said, thereby I defeat all the arguments of idealism, the philosophy that this universe exists within the mind. He said, I thereby uh, defeat all, all of uh, idealism, meaning that this rock is real. My foot is real. I kicked a real rock with my real foot, and I sent the rock flying. Uh, so where is this the universe exists within my mind? No, that, uh, I've defeated that very idea by showing the physicality of the rock and the physicality of my foot and the force of my physical foot against this physical rock. Uh, so he uh, cl claimed to have defeated uh, idealism by that. Um, if there's time, I'll come back to that story and why the, the, uh, his defeat was not a defeat at all. Uh, but that's consistent with our usual thinking, that this world is real. Damn it, it's real. I can see it. I can touch it. And materialism as a philosophy has become very popular in modern times because it seems so obvious that all that we know is matter, spirit, soul, consciousness, all of these things, those are just airy-fairy imaginations. But damn it, this is real. Uh, let's talk about real things, not all of these imaginary things. So Lakshmi Kavi in this uh, text, says that no, the truth of Advaita is present in our ordinary experience for us to see right now. And so he, in these verses, uh, points to the experience of Advaita here and now. So it's a wonderful text. That doesn't mean that it's easy to understand, but it means it can be understood. And once you understand it, then it changes your perspective on uh, yourself, on the world, uh, and of course on Advaita, on non-dualism. So it's only 28 verses long. The first verse is a Mangala Charanam, or Pranama Mantra, meaning a verse, Pranama Mantra, a verse of Pranam to God and Guru, or Mangalacharanam, it's a verse for establishing an auspicious beginning to the undertaking of writing this text. And the last verse 
is just a uh, final, uh, what's called artavada, a eulogy of the text. Uh, and so the first and last verses uh, don't uh, ex expound Advaita itself. Uh, they're in the form of uh, uh, praise and salutation. So actually, there are only 26 verses, too short to divide even into chapters. There are no chapters, just 26 uh, simple couplets. But in the course of those 26 verses, he uh, presents amazing truths. So that's what we're going to take up now. And we won't finish all 28 verses at, uh, this morning or this afternoon. Uh, there's not time because each verse is so deep. So this morning, uh, probably not time, what I was originally planning to do was to take up the first nine verses this morning. There may not be time for all nine verses, but we'll go as far as we can. And this afternoon, we'll take up a selection of other verses. But the, these first verses I'm going to do are... Uh, probably the most important. The others are very good also, uh, worth studying. And no, I don't get royalties from the sale of the text, so I'm not trying to sell the text, uh, but it is worth uh, studying. It's a wonderful text, but uh, uh, the first, uh, first nine verses are the most important in the whole text. So let me just jump in and begin with the first verse, which is just a salutation again. Not just a salutation, but it is a salutation. Kataksha kirana chanta naman mohabdaye namaha anandananda krishnaya jagan mangala murtaye. So this says namah anandananda krishnaya. Salutations to Krishna who is infinite bliss. Jagat mangala murtaye and who is the embodiment of all auspiciousness. Kataksha kirana achanda namata mohabdhaye. That's all one word. Those of you who know a little Sanskrit know that it's famous for long compound words. Uh, so this says, to him, that is to this anantananda krishnaya, to him who swallows the ocean of delusion of those who have surrendered to him. So those who have surrendered to him, he swallows the ocean of their delusion. Uh, by a ray from a glance of his eye, kataksha kirana, by a ray of uh, the, the glance of his eye. So just as if in play, he swallows the great ocean of delusion that uh, uh, swallow, that, uh, uh, that deludes uh, us, but when we surrender to him. So now, Anantananda Krishnaya, that means to Krishna who is uh, infinite bliss itself. But now, Anantananda was also his guru, the name of his guru. Anantananda Raghunatha was his guru's name, uh, Lakshmidhara Kavi. So he's saluting his guru, he's saluting his Ishta Devata, his chosen ideal Krishna, and he's identifying the two, uh, his guru and Krishna. So all at the same time by uh, saluting Anantananda Krishnaya. So to Krishna, who is Anantananda, both the name of the Guru and also the root meaning, who is infinite bliss itself. So salutations to Anantananda Krishna, the embodiment of auspiciousness to the world, who by a ray proceeding from his mere glance destroys the great ocean of delusion of those who surrender to him. So again, that's the way he begins. And now we take up the first verse. 
And this is a very um, uh, wonderful verse and a very important verse. So I'll stay on this uh, and elaborate uh, 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 fully. Ahamasmi sadabhami kadachinnahamapriyaha brahmhaivaham matasiddham satirananda lakshanam Ahamasmi, I am. Sadabhami, I am always shining. Kadachinnahamapriyaha, never am I not dear. Brahmhaivaham atasiddham, thus is proven that I am Brahman itself, Satchidananda Lakshanam, of the nature of, uh, indicated by existence, consciousness, bliss, infinite existence, consciousness, and bliss. So it's a simple verse, very simple Sanskrit, extremely simple Sanskrit, as one of the amazing things that you find some of the best Advaitic texts. The Sanskrit is extremely simple, Shankaracharya. The ideas are very, very deep and profound, difficult to understand, but the language is very simple. Uh, and so with many other texts, the Ashtavakra Samhita, some of the simplest Sanskrit. If you want to learn Sanskrit uh, uh, and begin reading a text as quickly as possible, the easiest text to begin with is the Ashtavakra Samhita. Uh, and this also, in so many texts in, uh, in the Advaita tradition, the Sanskrit is extremely simple and straightforward. Uh, one of our Swamis, Swami Shantaswarupanandaji, who used to be in this country in Berkeley and went back to India and lived many years in Lucknow and passed away. A very saintly old Swami, disciple of Swami Shivananda. He used to say that when truth becomes complicated, it means somewhere there's a compromise. Somewhere there's a compromise because truth itself is luminous, is luminous and clear. So here, aham brahmasmi, I am Brahman. Oh, no, I'm sorry, uh, aham asmi. It's just, it begins with just aham asmi. I am. I exist. That's an extraordinary statement. You may think, well, Swami, that's not so extraordinary. We all knew that. <laughs> I know nothing, uh, nothing strange about that. Well, no, that's a wonderful statement. Aham asmi, I am. I am. The problem is that we don't know what it means to exist. We don't know what existence itself is. But the fact that I am, that's one of the most profound truths that there is. Swami Vivekananda used to say that the most profound truths are staring us in the face, but we don't even, uh, uh, we passed right over them because they're so ordinary seeming. When I was a teenager, about 13 years old, uh, I read a novel by Ray Bradbury. Ray Bradbury was famous for his science fiction and always his science fiction had some moral tale to tell. But this was not science, fi science fiction. It was a novel uh, taken from his own uh, experience of ch childhood. It was about a young boy this, in summer, during his summer vacation. The novel's name was Dandelion Wine. And uh, it didn't have much to do with Dandelion Wine. It was just what uh, uh, part of the story. But in the novel... This boy who's 12 years old, uh, suddenly during the summer, he realizes, I exist. I exist. And it was like an ecstatic experience for him. It was just, he was stunned by the thought that I exist. And at the time, I was only 13. Uh, I knew that there was something deep and profound and meaningful uh, in that experience of the boy, but I couldn't understand what it was. It was only later with the study of Vedanta that I understood 
that that fact of existence is one of the extraordinary uh, experiences. If we can just deal with that fact that I am, the sense that I am, where does that come from? I am, where does that come from? We think, well, we all think it. It comes from, comes, it's just obvious, Maharaj, it doesn't have to come from somewhere. We all know that we exist. So what do you mean, where does it come from? But no, if we know where it comes from and what it means, then we've known the heart of existence itself. The heart of existence itself. If we can learn just to hold on to that idea, I am. Now, normally, if we sit and we try to think, I am, then the feeling of my body, the picture of my body comes to mind. Even if my eyes are closed, the body is very much there. Thoughts start arising, sounds come, sensations come, ideas come, imaginations come, memories come, and all of that. But in the midst of all of that, if we can learn just to deal with the sense, I am, just hold on to that, I am, we begin to see an amazing thing after some time. We begin to see that everything else is happening in the midst of the I am. So you think I am and then the body comes. And so the first equation that comes is, well, of course, I'm the body. I am this uh, physical body. But no, if you deal with that for a little while, if you just hold on to that sense of I am, you see that the body is where? Yes, I'm aware of the body. I can feel the body, this big, heavy thing that, uh, that seems to encase me. But where is it? I see it's floating in my own awareness. I'm aware of the body. The body is floating in my awareness. And in the midst of everything is that sense I am, just the fact I am. If we can learn to meditate on just the fact that I am, not I'm a man or I'm a woman, not I'm young or I'm old, not I'm a Swami or I'm a householder, not I'm American or I'm Indian, none of those things, just the simple fact that I am. And we begin to get a, a wonderful sense of being unrestricted by anything. We begin to get a sense of uh, an unlimited existence because that's what we really are. It's here present in our present experience. Uh, and the very fact that I am is the most profound of uh, experiences once we hold on to it. A very strange thing happens as we begin to hold on to the sense of I am, if we begin to use this as a meditation. And I'm not telling you to give up whatever meditation you have, uh, but it is a very good meditation. Uh, it was a type of meditation which was often taught by uh, teachers like Ramana Maharshi. So if I can learn to hold on to that sense I am, then uh, gradually I begin to see that I found something which doesn't change. My body is changing all of the time, my mind is changing, things around me are changing, but the I am is steady. It's there in the midst of everything. It's hard at first to hold on to the, just the bare fact that I am, the sense that I am, uh, because we're not used to doing it. But it should be very easy and it becomes easy. Why? Because it's there in every perception we have, we're never absent the sense of I am. Never absent the sense of I am. Until in the highest samadhi or in deep sleep, which we'll deal with later. Uh, and that's because the I am has become silent. Not because it's not there, but because it's uh, no longer 
asserting itself as a, uh, as a sense. But otherwise, other than deep sleep and uh, the highest samadhi, the sense I am, or not even the highest samadhi, but samadhi, uh, the sense I am is always there. And the hymn to Samadhi, Swami Vivekananda says that uh, only the I, I, I is there. And eventually even the I disappears, he says. Even, and then what is left, no one can say. Then there's no, but what has happened is that the I has merged back into its source, which is silence itself. So it should be easy to hold on to the I am, the sense I am, because it's present in everything. I'm wearing glasses. And uh, all of us who wear glasses have had the experience of forgetting that I'm wearing my glasses and I've got to go somewhere and I think, oh God, I've got to, got to go get my glasses. I'm looking everywhere. Gee, I usually put it on the table. It's not on the table. Uh, maybe I put it on the nightstand. No, it's not on the nightstand. Maybe I left it in the bathroom and I'm looking everywhere. And then suddenly I realize, oh my God, I'm wearing them. <laughs> They're right here. I'm seeing my glasses first and seeing everything else second. First, I have to see my glasses before I can see you. And yet, I'm not used to focusing on the glasses themselves. If I do focus on them, I can see them. They're right here. But I'm used to focusing out there. And so with the I am. The I am is the first thought, the first perception, the first thought, the first perception. Everything else comes after that. All of our thoughts come after the sense of I am. All of our memories, all of our imaginations, all of our perceptions of the outer world comes after the sense of I am. So if I can hold on to the sense of I am, I begin to feel a timeless element to myself. I begin to feel that there's something timeless to myself and changeless. A stranger thing happens as we go deeper into that sense, that meditation on I am. After we've become better at holding on to it a little bit, not that you can hold on to it like an object, but you just relax and just feel the sense, that the fact that I am. Uh, once you can do that to some extent, then you begin to realize, first of all, that this body, where do I perceive the body? The body is floating in the sense of I am. The I am is something else. It's not the body, but the body is floating in the sense of I am. Where are my thoughts? My thoughts are floating in the sense of I am. The I am is primary. Thoughts and body are secondary perceptions. Uh, uh, but then as we go further with it, we begin to see, where do I see this world? I see it within the I am. Where do I see the sun and the moon and distant galaxies if I look through a telescope? I see them in the I am. Then the I am becomes something which is non-personal, impersonal. We re I realize that the I am doesn't mean Swami Atmarupananda, who was born at such and such a place at such and such a time many, 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 many years ago and uh, so forth. No, I begin to realize that the, the I am is impersonal. I am the I am, but I am the I am not as Swami Atmarupananda, but as something which is non-personal, non-individual. I begin to see that the whole universe arises within the I am. And so just the fact that Ahamasmi, I am. That should be an astonishing fact to us. It's not only because we've never dealt with it. But again, as I said towards the beginning, it's present in every perception and every thought we've ever had from the time we were born or maybe even before we were born. From whatever moment we first had uh, uh, any awareness in this incarnation, the I am has been present. 
And if we can begin to hold on to it, then we begin to feel uh, uh, more and more free from the circumstances of our life. Because I realize that the I am is what I am. I am the I am. It's an identity. It's not that I look at the I am or the I am is out there and I see it. Oh, where's the I am? Oh, there's the I am. Oh, that's, that's the I am. No. I am the I am. It's who I am. And uh, I'm, be- I'm beginning to sound like Popeye. Yeah. I am that I am. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I begin to, uh, begin to feel again this, that, this, uh, that uh, that which I am is not limited by the circumstances of life. Yes, I still, because I'm still uh, within ignorance, I haven't attained liberation, I still feel the pains of life and so forth, but I begin to feel that I shouldn't. I shouldn't have to. I shouldn't have to. It's my great weakness that I have to, because I can't hold on to it strongly enough, but I shouldn't have to be subject to the miseries of life. I am that which is beyond the miseries of life. And so again, this is in the midst of our experience. You all know the, and the, uh, come to the other elements of the verse in a minute, but let me back up for a moment and say you all know the traditional Vedantic uh, example of the snake in the rope. That you see a, a rope in the half light, and uh, probably most of us have done that. I've certainly done it on numerous occasions because uh, I always liked snakes and as a kid was always looking for snakes to catch them. Uh, but um, uh, we've all experienced when we saw a rope or a stick and thought it was a snake and jumped. Uh, so it's a common experience. So Vedanta uses that to ex- explain how it is that reality is Brahman, infinite consciousness, infinite bliss, infinite existence, timeless, spaceless, and yet I see it as a world. I see it as a world uh, peopled with people and animals and things and so forth. How is it that I see that? It's because I'm projecting the vision of the snake onto the rope. The rope is Brahman and the vision of the world is the snake that I project onto it. All of us are seeing nothing but Brahman. Swami Vivekananda said, I have seen nothing in my life but God, nor have you, he says. Nor have you. You've never seen anything in your life except for God, but you're misreading it misreading it as men and women and children and old men and dogs and cats and snakes and uh, rivers and lakes and planets and so forth. We've never seen anything but God. And so we're projecting this uh, vision over the luminous, self-luminous Brahman. And so the mystery is that if everything is Brahman and I'm projecting this rope of the world over Brahman, How can I do that? How is that possible? If Brahman is infinite luminosity, infinite reality, infinite truth, nothing can hide it. Nothing can hide it. It's reality itself. How can a faint illusion, a faint delusion, a a faint misunderstanding hide that which is reality itself? That which is luminosity itself. That which is clarity itself. That which is truth itself. How is it that we can't see it? We should see it. And so there was uh, one of our Vedanta devotees who had spent many years as a Vedanta monk, John Dobson, who was an astronomer also. And uh, uh, he extended that illustration of the rope and the snake in a beautiful way, which is perfectly consistent with Vedanta. uh, But it, it extends the 
ability of the uh, metaphor to illuminate our condition. He said that when we see a rope as a snake, when we mistake a rope as a snake, we're seeing the rope, and that's traditional Vedanta. We are seeing the rope, otherwise we wouldn't see the snake there, but we just mistake it. But he says, how do we mistake it? If the rope is a three-foot rope, I don't mistake it for a a 10-foot Burmese python. If it's a rope that's a half inch in diameter, I don't mistake it for a giant anaconda. I mistake it for a snake that's half an inch in diameter, a snake that's three feet long. So it means I'm seeing the rope through the snake. The nature of the rope I'm seeing at the same time that I'm misseeing it as a snake. And so the same is true of our uh, vision of truth here now. We're seeing nothing but God all of the time, Swami Vivekananda said. That's all that we can see because that's all that is. We're just misreading it. But if we're misreading it, the reality, just like the snake, the rope coming through the snake, the dimensions of the rope coming through the snake, uh, then the reality must be coming through our vision of this world also. And that's what this book uh, text is dedicated to showing. The very perception which all of us have, and in fact all sentient beings have, anywhere there's consciousness, it is self-consciousness. Not in the Western sense of self-consciousness, which means shyness and timidity and, oh, I don't like people looking at me because I'm self-conscious, I want to go hide somewhere. No, self-consciousness in the sense that uh, consciousness knows itself. As the sun illumines itself, the sun doesn't need to take a flashlight to uh, uh, see itself. No, it's self-luminous. And so consciousness by nature is uh, self-luminous. It's self-aware. And so... Uh, that sense of I am, that is uh, a direct intuition of our infinite nature. And if we can just hold on to that, the reason why we don't see it is because we're not used to seeing it. We're not used to thinking in these terms. We're so, uh, again, with the glasses imagery or uh, analogy, I'm so used to looking out there that I don't see this, but I see this first before I can see you. And so... We're used to ignoring the sense of I am because we're so focused on the what's out there. Uh, but it's a direct intuition of our infinite nature. So, ahamasmi, sadabhami, always I shine. Always I shine. Now, shining has a particular meaning in Vedanta. What does it mean that I am shining? It means that... Uh, I am always known to myself. I am always self-aware. And I am illuminating the whole world. How do I know that you are there? You say, well, Swami, it's because light is reflected off of us and goes into your retina and it makes an image and it goes to your brain and it's processed and then you see us. Yes, all of that may be true as far as it goes. But before that happens, I have to be conscious. It's my consciousness which illumines you. That's why Swami Vivekananda says, uh, it is I who says, O sun, you exist. It's not the sun who illuminates me. The sun illuminates this body and the things around it. But the sun doesn't uh, make my being manifest. It only manifests uh, or illuminates matter. But I illuminate the sun. I look at the sun and say, O sun, you exist. I wake up and say, O world, you exist. I illuminate the world, and speaking for each one of us, not 
It's not that Swami Atmarupananda is the only one who illuminates the world. No, speaking for each one of us. I illuminate the world. I open my eyes and the world exists. Why? Not because the world illuminates me, but because I illuminate the world. There is a uh, philosopher-mathematician whom all of you know of. Some of you may know more, some of you less, but all of you know of him, René Descartes the French mathematician and philosopher, anyone who studied uh, uh, basic geometry uh, and the Cartesian coordinates, the X and Y, and if you want three dimensions, the Z coordinates, knows uh, Descartes because those are called the Cartesian uh, coordinates because he developed them, a way of uh, graphing uh, 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 geometrical figures. So Descartes was a... uh, a French mathematician first, and secondarily a philosopher. And as a mathematician, his uh, uh, one of his special interests was geometry. And that was still in the day when Euclidean geometry was the geometry. There was no other geometry except for Euclidean geometry. In fact, that's still what we study in school when we begin studying geometry. It's only later that we come to non-Euclidean geometry, which became important for relativity theory and such things. But Euclidean geometry is the basic common sense geometry. So as you know in geometry, you start with axioms. That is, uh, truths which are thought to be self-evident. That uh, a point is this, a line is this, the shortest distance between two points and so forth. You, you set out the obvious truths of geometry in the form of axioms, uh, those things which are unquestionable. Uh, And then on the basis of the axioms, you try to prove theorems. You try to extend the knowledge of the axioms by thinking, well, if all of these axioms are true, uh, then what else does it point to as being true? And so you come up with a theorem, and then you try to prove it through the axioms, and then that theorem, theorem becomes part of the body of certain knowledge. And in that way, you start using theorems that have been proven, along with the axioms, to prove more and more theorems. And so you build up the knowledge of geometry in that way on the basis of what's thought to be certain knowledge. And it was certain knowledge until uh, uh, it was shown that there are certain flaws in Euclidean geometry. But that was long before René Descartes' time. So Descartes thought what is done for geometry should be doable for philosophy. Just as in geometry, you start with known truths and you build more truth on the basis of these known truths. And so you get certain knowledge. He said that philosophy, philosophers have been arguing for, uh, in his time, a couple of thousand years uh, about philosophical propositions and they can't come to any conclusion. It's because they start with faulty premises. So let us find what what is known for certain. And he started out in a beautiful way and came almost to the most beautiful and perfect conclusion. It was just short of of perfection. And I'll explain why in a moment. He began by thinking, okay, what do I know for sure? What is it that I can't doubt? What is questionable and what is certain in my experience? He wanted, again, to build his philosophy on certain knowledge, certain uh, the certainty of uh, uh, truth. And so he started by thinking about the external world and said, well, do I know that the external world exists? 
And do I know that it exists as it's presented to my senses? And he said, no. I can't be absolutely certain. Because I see the world, I know the external world through my senses. But I also know that if my senses are defective, I have a defective sense of the outer world. So I can't be sure of the outer world because I may be born, and all of us may be born, with defective senses. And then it's giving us a defective uh, knowledge of the external world. So I can't be sure of the external world. No matter how certain it seems, I can't be sure. Then he thought, what about my internal world, the world of uh, thinking? He said, I can't be sure of the, the world of thought either. Because I could have a diseased mind. I could, have, I could be insane and think that I'm thinking correctly, but uh, actually be quite deluded. And so I can't be sure of the world of my thinking either. Because as he knew, there are certain types of insanity where one of the characteristics is the person thinks that I alone know the truth and everybody else is deluded. So maybe I'm suffering from something like that. Maybe others are also. So I can't be sure of my internal world or the external world. So he said, what is left? Well, he thought, I can doubt everything. I can doubt the external world. I can doubt my internal world of thinking. But I can't doubt myself because I'm present in the midst of the doubt. You see, he had the intuition of the I am. The intuition of the I am. I can't doubt myself. So he came up with his famous uh, statement, Cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. And that was his fatal mistake. Because he didn't go quite far enough. He almost went far enough, but he didn't go quite far enough. And there's a reason why he didn't go far enough. It was because of the limitations of Western th thinking. In Western thought, there was the idea of uh, uh, mentality and physical matter. There's mind and there's matter. And human beings were thought to be, uh, uh, have two levels of being, the mental level and the physical level. And even the soul was considered in Western thought to be a part of the mind, an aspect of the mind, a part of the mind. And so he had uh, the idea, because of his Western context, that there's nothing higher than thinking. Thinking is the highest thing that we come to. Even now, in Western, pure Western thought, that is Western thought that hasn't had a modern mixture of Vedanta into it, uh, and there are many cases of that now, but cases of pure Western thought, there's no idea of pure consciousness. In the West, when you hear the word consciousness, a person always means mental, conscious mental processes. But the idea that there is something called consciousness, which is the light itself of consciousness, outside of all process, outside of all thinking, outside of all materiality, that which illumines everything else, the light of experience itself, the light of awareness itself. Uh, there's no such idea. Consciousness is just uh, mental, conscious mental processes. And so Descartes suffered from that context where there was nothing beyond thinking. Thinking was the highest part of our being. And so when he got to the point where he saw that I can't prove even that my mental thinking is correct, but I'm present as the doubter, he thought of the doubter as also a form of thought. My doubting uh, that I exist, that also is a form of thought, uh, but I'm present in the doubt itself, but meaning I'm present in the thought of the doubt itself. The idea that, no, I am, 
And therefore, I can think or not think if I'm high enough, if I'm uh, spiritually uh, advanced enough. I don't need to think. I'm beyond thought itself. That idea wasn't there. And so he said, cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. No, I am. Therefore, there's a possibility of uh, thought or of not thinking. There's a possibility of dreaming. There's a possibility of perceiving the world. Because I am. But just I am. No thinking business. No, that's something that is lower than the I am. Not even connected to the I am. Uh, and so uh, he came very close to that. But again, all of this is to say that that discovery, if he had gone far enough with that discovery, if he had realized that, no, my I am, my existence is self-evident. It's not thinking that proves that I am. It's I am, and then thinking in other things, that that is self-evident. If he had come to that realization, he would have known two things about us, which are the foundations, uh, certain foundations of our experience. Everything else can be doubted. One is, I am. Not I think, but I am. It's self-revealing. Second is, I know that I am. I know that I am. And so, I am and I know. And the Vedanta says that the two are the same. Your existence and your knowing, knowingness, are the same reality. I exist and I know. It's not that I exist and I know, but the two are the same thing. And so that's the foundation of a true philosophy. I exist and I know. So ahamasmi, I am. Sadabhami, always I shine. I shine as the knower. Now let me stop on that for a minute. And no, we're not going to get very, we're not going to get past the first verse, I'm sorry. I thought we'd at least cover nine verses in the first session, but we won't get past the first verse. Um, so, Sadabhami, um, uh, uh, always I shine. Because these things need to be explained, otherwise if you just pass over them, because each phrase in this uh, text has profound depth to it, profound depth to it. It's amazing what he put into these uh, short verses, this short text. So always I shine. What does shining mean? We think of a light bulb shines, a flame shines, the sun shines, etc. So it, that is, it gives off light. Uh, and so it shines and it illuminates other things. So the self itself, the I am, that which I am, that is by nature shining. That is, shining in the sense of consciousness, awareness. I am. So not shining like a light bulb, and that quite obviously none of us shine like light bulbs, none of us shine like the sun. Uh, but at the heart of our experience, we are shining. We're always illuminating something. We're illuminating this uh, room. We're illuminating, when you look into the sky, we're illuminating the sky. Uh, when I close my eyes and think about something, I'm illuminating my thoughts. I'm seeing my thoughts. I go to sleep and I dream, and I'm illuminating my dreams. I go into deep sleep and I'm illuminating the cloud of ignorance, that which is the root of my phenomenal being, the cloud of ignorance. I think when I come out of deep sleep, as it says from the time of the Upanishads, uh, wake up from, the, from deep sleep and say, oh God, I slept so beautifully. I didn't know anything. I was completely zonked out. And that's in the Upanishad. I'm completely zonked out. Uh, it's right there in the Chandogya Upanishad. Completely zonked out. I was uh, so wonderful. I was so happy. Uh, yes. Now, 
when I first read it, and most of us when we first read that, we think, well, that's a play on words. No, actually, I didn't know anything. But no, the Upanishad says, and the Vedanta tradition after it says, that no, that's the revelation of a truth, that in deep sleep, I didn't know anything, means I knew no thing. I knew, how else can I wake up and say I was completely zonked out? How can I say I didn't know anything? If I didn't know that I didn't know anything, I know that I knew nothing. And it was blissful. Oh, it was wonderful. I wish I could, uh, wish I could uh, go back and just uh, remain in deep sleep for a while. Oh, it was so wonderful. So it was blissful, and there was the knowledge of no thing. I didn't know anything. And so even there, I'm shining. In deep sleep, I'm shining, illuminating the cloud of ignorance, which is the root of my phenomenal being. In dream, I'm illuminating the dream. In the waking state, I'm illumining all of my experience. So always, I'm shining. The light of experience comes from here. It's not out there. If you turn out all of the lights, you block out all of the windows, so it's completely dark in here, then I'm still shining. I'm illuminating the darkness. I see darkness. I illuminate the darkness. I know that it's dark out there. I'm illuminating that. So always I shine. In all states I shine. Sadabhami. Always I shine. Kadachinahamapriyaha. Never am I not dear. That's less obvious. So I am and I know that I am. Those are facts directly revealed in our experience. Undeniable facts. And that's revelatory of our true nature. That's who we are. The I am which always shines, eternally shines. The nature of light itself, the light of awareness. Uh, but this next part is not so obvious. I'm never not dear. Well, a lot of times I'm not dear. Sometimes I hate myself. Sometimes I say, oh, why did I do that? And as we get older, there's the disease of rumination. Or we begin to think of something that uh, we said when we were in junior high school. Why did I say such a stupid thing? Nobody in junior high school, most of them are dead anyway. And uh, those that are still alive certainly don't remember a stupid thing that I said in junior high school. But then the mind wants to ruminate uh, over it. And so anyway, the point is that uh, we think, well, I'm not always dear to myself. There are times when I hate myself, uh, times when I'm uh, really not happy with myself, and especially young people when we're young. When we, in our teenage years, we spend a lot of time wishing I could be somebody else. Oh, I wish I were so-and-so. He's so popular. I wish I were so-and-so. She's so beautiful. I wish I were so-and-so. He's so talented, etc. Uh, and so how can we say that I'm never not dear? So it's not, that one is not so obvious. But no, this also is just as true as the fact that I am and I shine. What about the suicide, the, the tragic person who commits uh, suicide? They hate themselves so much that they commit suicide. So how can you say that never am I not dear to myself? Well, no. The suicide doesn't hate himself or herself. The suicide is so distraught with the noise in the mind and the contradictions in their life and in their experience, that the only way they can find to shut it off or just to get rid of it is to end their life. Uh, it's not because of the self which they really are. It's because of all of the noise which actually they are not, but they don't know how to get rid of it. That's what causes a person such misery that they do the only, thing, the only way they know to get out of that, uh, the, that misery and all of that noise and the contradictions and the pain is to uh, give up their life, to take their own life. When we begin to get a sense of this I am, and when we begin to get the sense that I am a knower, 
I'm shining, I am, and I'm always illuminating. My nature is illumination itself. Then we begin to see that, no, I am dearness itself. I am dearness itself. When we love another person, another thing or another person, a person, of course, the love is stronger for a person than for things. Uh, and so when we love another person, we think that, uh, well, I love that person because of that person. No, the Brihadaranya Upanishad says we love that person for the sake, for the sake of the self. It's for the self. Uh, it's for the self in the person. But the self there doesn't mean that the self is a thing which is in that person. The self is who I am. It's because of that which I am which is in the other person. It's that which I love. And so when I begin to feel that is here, then I don't look for it outside. It's not that I find it here and so now I can hate people. Uh, ah, people are worthless. Everybody's a liar. Everybody's a cheat. Everybody's no good. No, it's not that. It's that when I begin to feel it here, then I love everyone equally. Because I see that everything arises within the self. Everyone is floating in the I am. Everyone is floating in the light of awareness. Uh, and so then I begin to see that, no, everything is dear. Uh, because the I am is dear. That which I am, the I am, that which I am, is dearness itself. And so then he says, Brahmaivaham By this recognition that I am, I shine always and never am I not dear. Uh, it's proven that I am Brahman itself. Because Brahman is the nature of existence, consciousness, and bliss. The nature of being, shining, and dearness. Asti, bhati, priya. It said that Brahman is satchidananda, existence, consciousness, bliss, which means, in relative terms, asti, beingness, bhati, shining, shiningness, and priya, dearness. And so Brahman is beingness, shiningness, and dearness. And so when I begin to feel that, I realize that, no, I was always dear. I never hated myself. I hated the things that have grown onto me that I think of as myself. All of the habits and the memories and the things that I've done and not done, none of that is me. That's not the I am. That happened within the I am. That's not me. But the that which I really am, that's dearness itself. And so again, that's not obvious only because we don't really know who we are. We think we're something else. And the things about us that we don't like, things about us that we wish we could change, that's not us. That's something that uh, uh, I have identified with through the ahamkara, through the uh, egotism. The I-maker, as the ahamkara means. The, I, the ego, or the ahamkara, is that part of the mind which takes the sense of I am and projects it where it doesn't belong. It says, I am this body. I am this mind and these thoughts. Uh, this phone is mine. These clothes are mine. This book is mine, so don't touch it. You keep your dirty hands off of my book, because it's my book. And this is my house, and if I want you to get out, you have to get out from my house. No, that's the I-maker, the ahamkara, which has taken the sense of I am, the pure sense of I am, and stuck it on to all of these things. And uh, so that's why it's said that the ego is the enemy in spiritual life. We have to define the ego. The ego should mean, if you just take the root meaning of ego, 
It just means the I am. That's not the enemy. That's who I am. The ego is the sense I am. That's what ego means. Uh, so I am, that's not the enemy. That's the door to the infinite. That's the door to the infinite. It is the reflection of the infinite in, the, uh, uh, in the, uh, our present consciousness. But the ahamkara is the enemy. And that's what we usually mean when we say the ego is the enemy. It's the, that which takes that sense of I am and sticks it everywhere where, it's, uh, where it doesn't belong. If I can hold on to the I am, then that leads me to the infinite. And so that's not the enemy at all. So, brahmaivaham atasiddham satchidananda lakshanam. So I am Brahman itself of the nature of existence, consciousness, and bliss. Existence, I am. Consciousness, I shine. Bliss, I am dear. So again, that's, those three things are present in our present experience. The dearness is not as obvious, but it's there once we look for it. And once we find that the reason I think that I'm not so dear to myself, things about myself I don't like, because those aren't myself. Those things aren't me. If I realize who I am, then yes, I'm the essence of dearness itself. And that's not, again, egotism in the bad sense, the usual sense of egotism, uh, in the sense that uh, I'm dear and I love myself, but I sure don't love any of you. Uh, I'm great and uh, you are all worms. No, it's not that kind of uh, uh, egotistical thinking. It means that I am dear because I realize that uh, I am uh, the I am of everyone. That the I, there's one I am. Ramana Maharshi uh, used to say that uh, two statements from the Bible were his favorite statements, and both of them were from the Torah, the Jewish uh, Bible, the, what the Christians call Old Testament. One of them was, uh, uh, I am that I am. Uh, I think that was uh, Yahweh's statement to Moses. I am that I am. I am that I am. I am the I am. The I am is what I am. Uh, God is saying, I am the I am. I am I am itself. And uh, he, uh, he said that his other favorite statement was uh, from the Psalms, where the psalmist uh, says, uh, God's speaking in the Psalms to the psalmist, be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. So be still. If we can still the mind, if we could quieten the mind, still the mind, and know that I am God. I am is God. If I can know that the I am is God. Uh, those uh, two wonderful statements, statements interpreted in that way, statements of uh, non-dualism, statements of Advaita. So I'll stop here and see if there are any questions at this point. Um, so we didn't get very far, but uh, uh, better not to get far and understand something rather than get far and it all be a blur, I guess. So let me see if there are any questions. If they're not, I'll take another verse, but I'd rather see if there are any questions first. Stunned silence or <laughs> confused silence or some kind of silence. So let me take up one more verse and then uh, we'll close for the morning session. So um, again, I am eternally I shine, never am I not beloved. Thus it is proven that I am verily Brahman, existence, consciousness, bliss. So the third verse says, 
ಮಾೇತಿ ಚಿದ್ವ್ಯೋಮಿ ಜಗದ್ಗಂಧರ್ವಪತ್ತನ ಅಥೋಹಂ ನ ಕಥಂ ಬ್ರಹ್ಮ ಸರ್ವಜ್ಞಕಾರಣ ಚಿದ್ವ್ಯೋಮಿ ಇನ್ ದ ಸ್ಪೇಸ್ ಆಫ್ ಕಾನ್ಶಿಯಸ್ನೆಸ್ ನಾವು ಕಾನ್ಶಿಯಸ್ನೆಸ್ ಪ್ಯೂರ್ ಕಾನ್ಶಿಯಸ್ನೆಸ್ ಇಸ್ ಬಿಯಾನ್ ಸ್ಪೇಸ್ ಇನ್ ಟೈಮ್ ಸೊ ಹೌ ಕೆನ್ ಯು ಸೇ ದ ಸ್ಪೇಸ್ ಆಫ್ ಕಾನ್ಶಿಯಸ್ನೆಸ್ ಇನ್ ವೇದಾಂತ ದೇ ಸ್ಪೀಕ್ ಆಫ್ at least three levels of space there's the bhutakasha the, uh, the the physical space that's what we see and when we talk about space that's what we usually mean in english when we speak about space we mean this that we see bhutakasha the the physical space but then there's chittakasha the space of the mind mental space one of the very strange facets of western thinking uh and this was emphasized by descartes and he 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 was uh, partly to blame for emphasizing this it was already present but he emphasized it uh so it was uh, not to his, this was not much to his credit uh the western distinction between the matter and thought is that matter occupies space and thought is non-spatial nonsense that's absolute nonsense and that also is we can directly see with our ordinary experience that thinking is quite spatial it just occupies a different space the thoughts are spatial but the mental space is different from the physical space uh so it's a very strange idea that in the west the distinction was made between mind and matter is that matter is that which occupies space and mind is that which is non-spatial no it's nonsense it's just a different type of space mental space when we dream what is that that's mind created that's a pure realm of thought of the mind in the dream and the dream that's full of space when you go to meditate you try to meditate you close your eyes okay now i'm going to meditate you can't meditate without having a sense of space where am i going to put my mind when i meditate uh and so everything in thinking is also spatial so there's physical space there's mental space but then there's chida akasha the space of consciousness there are two reasons for calling pure consciousness spatial one uh is just by analogy and so some vedantins will make the point that uh, the space of consciousness is only called space just by analogy because you have physical space you have mental space and so we speak of uh space of consciousness just uh, just because we're speaking in terms of space but it has nothing to do with space just as the four states of consciousness waking dream deep sleep and then turiya the fourth state of consciousness was well, not a state of consciousness at all it is consciousness itself it's beyond all states but we call it the fourth just by analogy so we call the space of consciousness just space only by analogy but there's another reason why and that is that until we have attained to the highest realization of consciousness beyond time and space desha kala nimitta empty of time space and causation we have a sense of the vastness of consciousness itself and we begin to get even from an if we practice the types of uh, thinking that are in this uh, text we begin to feel that this whole universe floats in my awareness and so my awareness begins to feel vast like a vast unimpeded space that both physical space and mental space exist within the space of consciousness and so there we do have the uh intuition of the space of consciousness when we come to consciousness itself we find that no it's beyond the very conception of space 
Space is where there's a distance, where there is a measurement, where there is a, a length and breadth and a depth, etc. And so in the highest consciousness, there's no space whatsoever, no time whatsoever. Uh, but until we get there, when we begin to intuit, we get an intuitive feeling for consciousness itself. We begin to feel that the whole universe floats within my awareness. And then I feel that my existence is vast, that my existence is vast. This body itself floats in that awareness. Let me just try an exercise with you for just uh, less than a minute. Just close your eyes for a moment. Close your eyes and simply be aware of your physical body, the whole of it. You can feel, with your eyes closed and without touching, you can feel the soles of your feet. You can feel the crown of your head. You can feel the small of your back. You can feel the whole body, even parts which you can't see directly with the eye. You can feel them directly. The whole body is sensation of the whole body is present for you. But how do you feel it? We never think of this, but think as you try to feel the presence of the body, the fact of the body floating, that it's floating in your awareness, that you are not circumscribed by the body. Body itself is floating in your awareness. You're aware of the top of your head, the bottom of your feet, and you're aware of the space above your head and the, the, the space below your feet. The whole body is floating inside your awareness. And so, with that simple exercise, we see, normally we think that there's this vast world. I'm inside the vast world. This body is a little tiny speck within this vast world. My mind is inside my body. And inside my mind, there's something called consciousness. But no, the opposite is true. The whole of this universe is inside my mind, and my mind is inside of my consciousness. The reverse is true from what we think. So here he says, in me alone, the space of pure consciousness, in me, in the space of consciousness, jagad gandharva pattanam udeti. The wor this world which is like a Gandharva palace. That's an uh, old Indian expression. This world is compared to a Gandharva, a palace of the Gandharvas. The Gandharvas were celestial musicians uh, who were invisible to the ordinary eye. And so a Gandharva palace in the sky means something imaginary. That I, I see a palace in the sky uh, and think that it must belong to the Gandharvas, because other, otherwise what would a palace be doing in the sky? But actually it's just my delusion, it's just my imagination. So in me alone, the space of pure consciousness, this sky palace world arises. This uh, vision of a world in the sky arises. In me alone, in the space of consciousness, where do I see this world? Where do I see you? I see you inside of myself. Where do you see me? You see me inside of yourself. That is, you see me within your consciousness. This is a big topic, and I'll have to address this in the next session to explain how it is and how it's provable by scientific means that we don't see a physical world. The very idea of matter is stupid. It's silly. It's not worthy of human beings to believe in the exclusive reality of matter. To believe that reality is the only thing uh, that we know, that's just foolish. 
any philosopher of science has to agree, and they do agree, because they have to agree. They have no way out. No one has ever experienced matter. You can't possibly experience matter. It's impossible to experience matter. Matter is purely a hypothesis to explain what it is that I perceive. The very idea of materialism is not worthy of a child. It's a foolish philosophy, idiotic philosophy. To say that materialism, matter is all that we know, foolish. You've never known matter. You've never seen matter. You've never touched matter. You've never tasted matter. You can't. It's demonstrably impossible to experience matter. Matter is only a hypothesis to, to explain what it is that we're experiencing. So that I'll take up in the next. But just to give, conclude with uh, the basic idea of this verse. In me alone, the space of pure consciousness, this sky palace world arises. Yes, this world arises within me. And that I'll demonstrate in the, the afternoon. How then can I not be Brahman, all-knowing the primal cause? How can I not be Brahman if the whole universe appears within me? How can I not be Brahman? The all-knowing. And the meaning of all-knowing also we have to understand. Because uh, I as Brahman, you as Brahman, am all-knowing. That doesn't mean that I know Swahili and I know Chinese and uh, I know Kasi and uh, Cambodian and uh, Khmer and other uh, uh, languages or that I know nuclear physics and things like that. But no, in the primary sense, I am all-knowing. Uh, if I realize the highest truth, one day I will be all-knowing and you will be all-knowing one day. Uh, we are all-knowing now, but we don't know it, and so it doesn't do us any good. Uh, so we have to know, know that we are all-knowing, and then we will be fully all-knowing. So that will take up in the afternoon. So in me alone... The space of pure consciousness, the sky palace world arises. How then can I not be Brahman, all-knowing the primal cause? So I am, I shine, I'm never not dear, and this whole universe arises within me. So, you have a question now. Okay. Okay, very briefly, because time is up now. So I'll just very briefly say that again, Bhutakasha just means uh, what we recognize as physical space, what everybody recognizes. This is, uh, this is uh, Bhuta here means not ghost, of course, uh, one meaning of Bhuta, but here Bhuta means uh, the elements. So there are the, where we find, to use uh, uh, modern chemical uh, terms, where we find the periodic table of chemical elements existing. Uh, this is Bhutakasha, well, just what we experience. And Chittakasha is just the mental space, where my mind operates, the space in which my mind operates. It's said that the mind is like a lake, and thoughts are like waves. And indeed, uh, thoughts are wave-like in nature. But a wave takes a space to exist in. A wave doesn't, a wave doesn't arise in a spaceless uh, existence. A wave means something spatial. And so my thoughts are spatial also. So chitta-kasha is just the space in which my mind operates, where my thoughts are taking place. I see my thoughts rising. Well, what does that mean? Uh, the, to see my thoughts, they have to exist in space for me able to be, be aware of them. So chitta-kasha is just that. And chida-kasha just means the consciousness itself. Consciousness itself. It's all-pervading. All-pervading, yes. But if we could realize it as it is in itself, uh, in the absolute sense, full realization, uh, then we wouldn't even call it space. Then the, the very sense of space would disappear. Time would disappear. Causation would disappear. 
perception would disappear. So, another question, shall we take one more or should we close? Okay, okay, go ahead. Yes. Okay, the question, uh, in case you couldn't hear, uh, the question is that in the, say, I, I am, I exist, I shine, I'm dear, is there not the danger of bragging? Uh, yes, there's a danger in everything in life. Every, there's nothing in life that doesn't have an inherent danger. On the path of devotion, there are many, many dangers in the path of devotion. In the path of karma yoga, there are many, many dangers in the path of yoga, uh, karma yoga, so in raja yoga, so in jnana yoga. And so in jnana yoga, one of the dangers in jnana yoga is misapplying the, this sense that we've been talking about to the ego and saying that I, Swami Atmarupananda, am dear, and I shine, and I exist, and I am God. Uh, uh, that is a danger when I misapply it to this little personality and think that I, Swami Atmarupananda, am all-knowing, so you should all worship me. Uh, because I, I am and I'm very dear, as you will see when you get to know me. <laughs> so there, there is that danger. But if we follow it correctly, it uh, destroys the danger itself. Because as I said, if you begin to hold on to the pure sense, I am. Not I'm a man or I'm a woman, not I'm this body or this mind, these thoughts. But the I am is something which is prior to all of that. All of these things, thoughts and perception of the body, everything is arising after the sense of I am, if I can hold on to that, I begin to see that there, that's a universal I am. It's not something that I can claim for Swami Atmarupananda as opposed to you. I find that the I am is, uh, is you as much as me. It is the, 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 the universe itself arises within the I am. So egotism, uh, in the bad sense, pride, uh, depends on comparison. I'm God and you're not. I'm dear and you're not. Uh, I am and I shine and you don't. Uh, that, that's what egotism uh, causes, a comparison uh, uh, and contrast. Uh, but this uh, brings out the universality, that that which I am, you also are and everyone is. And so that's why Swami Vivekananda always stressed. He said, have, uh, have faith in yourself, have faith in yourself, have faith in all. Don't just have faith in yourself. Have faith in everyone. Uh, so that, that cuts out egotism. So again, the danger is in misapplying. So we'll stop here. Is the same, same I am existing in all? Yes, the same I am is existing in all, yes. Yes, as we begin to get the sense of the pure I am, we begin to feel that, yes, this I am is universal. It's not just Swami Atma Rupananda. But I am. Who am I? I am. I am the I am. I am that. And so one of the problems in understanding Advaita for many of us in the beginning is that uh, says, you're not the body, you're not the mind, you're the infinite Atman. And uh, we think, well, good for the Atman, but too bad for me. <laughs> because I am the body and mind. And so I've, I've suddenly been cast into the bucket of illusion, and the Atman is left free. Well, good for it. Uh, and I'm gone. 
No, no, I am uh, the Atman. And so I am the I am. That, uh, if, I try to f- if I try to find out who am I, I ask who I am. I can see the body, I can see my thoughts and everything, but uh, I'm the one who sees the body, sees the thoughts. And so I try to contract back, or I try to pull back into the sense of the I am. And then I begin to find this universal, which I am. And then I see that, no, become, uh, realizing the Atman doesn't mean that I, the body and mind, disappear and the Atman remains. Uh, no, I was that all of, the, all of the time. I am that now in my ignorance. I am that now in my practice. I am that in my realization. Uh, so I am the I am. Swamiji mentioned one of my favorite philosophers that uh, we all knew as as children. You may not know the reference. Uh, He said, I am that I am. That's all that I am. I'm Pape the Sailor Man. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. This was a cartoon. And uh, does anybody know Popeye? When we were kids, we all watched it. (laughs) And I never knew that there was such depth in that statement uh, until I heard it today. 